Welcome to the Brain People Podcast, a show where four mental health experts team up to bring you practical tools for overcoming mental health challenges. The Brain People don't replace your doctor or therapist, but we will give you some extra tools to help you on your journey. So join us as we fight mental illness, one episode at a time. Welcome to the Brain People Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Daniel Bynes, and I'm a psychiatrist. And joining me today is... My name is Jonathan Edens, and I'm a psychiatric PA. All right. Well, today we're going to be talking about treatments for major depressive disorder. And this is really, in a lot of ways, um, what we do day in, day out, isn't it? And so uh, let's just dive right into some of the things that we can do to treat depression, because I think it's so important to give our listeners a sense of hope, especially if you are struggling with depression or you have a loved one who is struggling with depression. Because again, you know, with depression, oftentimes a big part of it is that sense of hopelessness. There's nothing I can do. I don't know the way out. But the good news is there are actually a lot of things that we can do. So Jonathan, why don't you go ahead and start telling us about some of the things that will give us hope and help us on our journey. Yeah. The, the first thing I'll say is uh, th- there's no one size fits all approach, right? It's uh, and, and also a comprehensive and holistic approach, you know, we believe to be the best. So, you know, it's not that w- there's one therapy or one medication or one lifestyle intervention that really is going to, you know, be the end all be all in many cases, especially with the patients that are coming to us, right? Patients that have gone past their primary care doctor and need to see a specialist. We need to use an all hands on deck sort of approach. And, and, and so, and, and, and also, you know, the type of treatment that's going to be used or the type of regimen or protocol that's going to be used is probably going to change over time, depending on the, the characteristics of your depression, the level of severity, the frequency in which you have these episodes. So it's, it's, uh, so are you saying there's no one size fits all? (laughs) I am saying that. And I also say, uh, we are not, unless we are your actual prescribers, you know, uh, we need to put a disclaimer here and that you should always talk to your doctor, um, about these things in particular before you make any medical decisions. Yes. Thank you for, for (laughs) for reiterating that, because I think that's, that is actually a very important point, uh, that people don't try to do this all in your, don't do this at home, right? Yeah. <laughs> all by yourself. At We're, least. And, and the, the purpose of this podcast is to give you some ideas about some things that, you know, maybe you can take this information and you can take it to your doctor, right? You can make informed decisions about, is this something that maybe I'm not getting all the tools that I have or that I can utilize. And we're, we're hopefully, you know, trying to get the ball rolling, get some of those ideas flowing so that you can uh, uh, incorporate some of them into your own life with the help of a qualified professional. And, and I want to make a comment there because, you know, I really, um, I know physicians are often stressed to the max and I so appreciate especially my hardworking colleagues in the primary care setting. But, you know, to be frank, um, primary care physicians and uh, practitioners, they just often don't have the time to delve into this more holistic approach. And so, you know, I I get it. It's not, I'm not saying it's all bad. Like if there's depressive symptoms, then, you know, they, they often need to just prescribe something and go on with the appointment because there's three other things they need to address too. But, you know, if you're one of those individuals who maybe has taken an antidepressant or, you know, something for your mental health and it's just not getting much better, then it is really important to seek help that's more holistic. And again, this is not talking down, but it's just, that's not their 
niche. That's not their specialty. And so it's okay to reach out for more help. And there's so much more that can be done. And, you know, one other thing there is that I think that as people actually engage with some of these other things beyond medication, it gives you more of a sense of empowerment. You know, like I can actually do something rather than just like, oh, I just have to take a pill and then it magically gets better. And sure, it's great if the symptoms are better, but but it doesn't always help as much with the the psychological element too of like, hey, you know what? I've been able to like get some control back here in my life. So we're going to start with the foundational recommendations, foundational treatments, so to speak, you know, things that, you know, for the vast majority of people that come to our clinic, we're making these recommendations, right? These are things that we really want to try to get you uh, optimized as much as we can, uh, because long-term, you know, this is going to help you not only with your mental health, but your physical health, your social life and so on, right? So, so first we want to focus on physical health improvements. So this includes things like, um, enhancing your nutrition, right? You know, making sure you're eating a more holistic plant-based diet with, uh, you know, really high, highly nutrient dense foods. Um, you know, we want to, we want to optimize your, your hydration. Now, now I noticed you skipped over that almost a little fast, the the plant-based part, like almost like you were a little embarrassed (laughs) to say that. Tell me a little more about that. <laughs> well, we do have a podcast specifically on this topic. So if you're looking for a lot of detail, you can go to that podcast. But you know, basically, so a whole food plant-based diet is is really emphasizing so plant-based foods, so not animal products, however, things that are minimally processed or not processed whatsoever. Right, Dr. Uh, Dr. Greger, Dr. Michael Greger from nutritionfacts.org, he has kind of a statement. So something that is processed is nothing bad added, nothing good taken away, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. if you're following that as sort of a general rule of thumb and you're consuming a wide variety of, of uh, minimally processed uh, plant-based foods that have lots of color, that have lots of nutrient uh, that have lots of nutrients in them, right? Then that is a really good foundation to give you the best chance of success, because uh, your brain um, is is the organ that requires the most nutrients of anything, right, in your body. So it's important to give it the food it needs. Absolutely. Now, in, in some of our listeners might be like, "What plant? Why? Why? Okay, I get the whole foods part. That's pretty logical. But why the plant based? In a nutshell, I know we could again talk about this for a long time, but in a nutshell, what would you tell our listeners as far as like why? the plant-based part. So uh, we talked in a previous podcast, you know, about many of the different mechanisms uh, behind what, uh, you know, some of the root causes, so to speak, of what uh, of what causes clinical depression. And if we were to go through, you know, each one of those mechanisms, a lot of them can be uh, improved upon by having, you know, a really nutritious diet, right? So, so for example, the monoamine hypothesis, right? There are actually specific foods p- predominantly in the plant-based kingdom that are really good at enhancing uh, the production of those monoamines at levels that are actually optimal, right? Um, so, it, you know, it's not just about the, the the mass production of these monoamines, but it's actually about getting the right sort of regulatory balance of those neurotransmitters like serotonin, dopamine, and, and norepinephrine. Another one that we talked about is the inflammation, right? So you want to eat an anti-inflammatory diet. And most people may not think this, but but really uh, animal-based products and- uh, and um, Dairy. Uh, and dairy and uh, and processed foods, right? These are all very f- pro-inflammatory, and that was actually something we 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 didn't talk about uh, in in the previous podcast. But 
Uh, CRP, which is C-reactive protein, is an inflammatory cytokine that we generally uh, will test people when they're having inflammatory conditions. We see a much higher rate of uh, CRP elevations in patients with depression. So a lot of those, in, a lot of patients with depression would benefit from an anti-inflammatory diet, um, which would include mostly plant-based. Yeah, no, and I appreciate that. And and I know you and I have, have both uh, had our, our journey, right? Like we, we've both uh, eaten meat in the past and uh, I, I will be honest, I've enjoyed it very much when, <laughs> when I have, <laughs> but you know, we've realized like, Hey, this is actually doesn't do me as good as a plant-based diet. And, and so, you know, going through that and experiencing that myself, I think it's, it's pretty amazing. And, and the mental clarity you know, and then overall the energy level and everything um, that accompanies a better diet is pretty, pretty drastic. I've, I've noticed a difference in my life. So we I briefly mentioned water hydration, you know, that's going to be incredibly important. You know, the, the a lot of the body is, is uh, composed of water or the brain is predominantly composed or there's, there's a lot of weight associated with the brain that um, involves, you know, liquid involves water. So having adequate hydration, if you're dehydrated, that can impair um, and, and they've shown this in many studies that can impair cognitive function to a significant degree, just being slightly dehydrated. Absolutely. Uh, so exercise is kind of another physical health improvement. So, you know, we, we also have a podcast that goes into a lot more depth on exercise, but you know, in, in that regard, basically just getting regular, uh, you know, regular exercise, getting your heart rate up, right. Making sure you're, you're sweating a little bit, if you can, you know, doing it socially, doing something that you actually enjoy, right? These are things that are going to, uh, keep it as a habit in the long term. Absolutely. And then I'll add a few more, just sleep, light, and oxygen. You know, these things are also incredibly important to maintaining overall healthy uh, uh, sort of physical state. Yeah. And, you know, the, all of those are super important, but I'll, I'll tell you that when people are not sleeping consistently, that's one of the first things I, I try to go after is like, okay, how can we improve your sleep? Because, you know, during sleep, your brain and your body are really rejuvenating. And if you don't have that time that your brain has to kind of reset and to reboot and to even do some brain cleaning, if you will, and uh, repair, then that makes it very difficult to really make progress and get out of that hole of depression. So what's the, uh, what's the next foundational treatment? Well, you know, when, when I think about treating, I, I, I often think about the kind of four pillars, if you will, uh, in Loma Linda university, which is where I trained, we talked about the bio psycho social spiritual model. And so those are kind of the four pil pillars of, of the areas that we need to address. And so we've talked about the biological part, like how are we treating our bodies? Right. And that's super important. But then um, the psychological and the social and the spiritual, those are the other three pillars that we want to really address. So with let's let's talk about the social first. Um, so why is main you know why is being social? Why is this so important for depression? Well, studies are very clear that loneliness actually exacerbates uh, depression in a huge way. So when people feel disconnected, and what's interesting is you can be lonely in a crowd. Mm. You know, a lot of people mm -hmm. do interact with others, but inside they have the sense of disconnectedness. And so it's not always about the amount of interactions people have with other people. It's the quality of those interactions. And, there, and on the other hand, there are people that actually like spending a lot of time alone, but they don't feel lonely. You know, they have a sense of connectedness maybe with nature and then they have maybe a few um, 
small amount of relationships, but they're pretty meaningful, that can do them good. Um, so there's a lot of positive uh, with, with, with socialization. I mean, one of those is even, there's studies even that, that show that when people are social, it actually uh, helps to regulate the immune system in, in a positive way and they're less likely to get sick, for example. Uh, so it, it helps, I think, the stress level in a lot of way. At, at, at a very foundational level, it helps our body's at adaptation. And, you know, as they say, trials shared are halves and joys shared are doubled, mm -hmm. right? So there's a sense like when we're connected with other people that, uh, you know, even if we're going through a rough time, it makes it easier. Uh, you, you've heard the, 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 the saying, misery loves company, right? It makes it, <laughs> it, it makes it easier, not that we want to drag people into misery, but it makes it easier to go through hard times. And then those times that are good, it's like it magnifies the, the joy. So I would say one one uh, comment on that is that you know social connections just in general are important, but you want quality social connections, and and you know they say you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. So if your friends and your family are also uh, you know kind of pulling you down, right? Maybe they're kind of toxic um, or they're just really negative. And that can, you know, clearly you know, like individuals, because we're such social creatures, we tend to be somewhat of a sponge towards other people's emotions and behaviors. And so sometimes, you know, if, if appropriate, it may be good to kind of separate yourself, you know, from some of these individuals and try to spend more time with people that are going to be more uplifting for you. Right. Um, I, I think that's an important point to make. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, obviously we we can't like say, well, I want a new brother or a new sister or a new mom or dad, but we can still say, you know what, maybe I need to put some boundaries here with the amount of time um, I spend, the amount of interactions, and um, maybe I need to spend some time with some new friends or some other people that are actually more positive and uplifting because that, like you said, that quality is very important. And last thing I'll say about that is, is make sure you're not the person that's being the toxic <laughs> one for everybody else, right? That's so it's going to, it's going to require a little bit of social awareness, but you know, you know, one of the, one of the easiest way to tell if somebody's a narcissist is if they're calling everybody else narcissist, right? And so if you're thinking that everybody else is toxic, maybe you need to take a look in the mirror and evaluate kind of your own character and, and some of the things that maybe you need to work on as well. Are you calling me a narcissist? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's move on. So we talked about the biological and, you know, one thing that I should probably mention about, and I don't know if I should include it under biological or psychological, but addiction, I think is an, a really important thing to touch on because, uh, you know, addiction can definitely predispose people to major depression as, as well as other mental disorders. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, was there anything more you wanted to say on that? Well, you know, when we talk, think about addiction too, we're not just talking about substances, right? So sure. those, that's the most obvious one, but there's also a lot of behavioral addictions, uh, like, uh, technology, uh, pornography, video games, um, for some people Many shopping, others, right? Shopping, <laughs> food. Sure. Yeah. 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 So there can be all sorts of behavioral addictions, uh, that people can get into that can definitely predispose as well. Uh, so moving on to spiritual, uh, you know, uh, spiritual treatment, so to speak. Um, and this is, you know, uh, this is a really important point. And, you know, this may be of the four, the one that I think a lot of people, a lot of listeners may be slightly confused. Um, like why do we include this as one of the four, the, the four pillars, so to speak. And, 
you know, there's been over 400 uh, scientific studies dating back to the 1960s that have demonstrated that there's an inverse relationship between spirituality and depression in the majority of cases. I mean, what this means is essentially the more spiritual you become and the more invested in like a like-minded community that believes in a lot of similar things that you do, uh, that you believe as well, um, the lower your rates of depression, the lower the rates of depression in that community that we see. Yeah. And it's, it's really interesting, uh, because in the past psychiatry actually, in a way I'll use the word, uh, demonized <laughs> spirituality. And they, sure. they said it was actually an unhealthy coping mechanism, mm -hmm. but when they actually did the research on religion and spirituality, they found exactly what you said, that it's actually a very healthy thing. Now, that being said, I'll ask you this. Do you think there might be unhealthy forms of religion, spirituality, and healthy ones? Yeah, I'd absolutely say that. Uh, you know, the, the thing that I think comes to mind the most is a sort of spirituality that focuses on self, right? Mm -hmm. One that focuses on kind of your own impressions, your own ideas um, about, you know, maybe a higher higher being that doesn't really uh, contradict you, right? Part of, uh, part of what we do in psychiatry for a lot of people is somewhat uncomfortable. When you're going to see a therapist, we're always there, we're, we're frequently challenging the ideas and the predispositions that you might have so that you can learn and that you can become better, right? But if your spirituality is really just focused on yourself and it's not something that really causes you to grow and become a better person, then what purpose does it serve other than inflating your own ego? That's actually a really good point. So am, am I hearing you right that a healthy spirituality would actually potentially challenge some of your paradigms and challenge you to maybe look at things differently and challenge you to grow outside of rather than just like a pat on the back and saying, oh, yeah, you did a good job. Like you said, you know, a good psychotherapist is actually not going to just be like, oh, yeah, everything you think is fine and every thing that you believe is fine, right? Spirit healthy spirituality will often challenge a lot of our underlying core beliefs. Yeah, I think a lot of people, you know, if they if they have an idea of a God, right, um, it might be a God that's sort of like a dog, right? He's just there to love you or he or she, you know, is, is there to love you really no matter what you do, right? And a, a dog is never really going to challenge you. A dog is never, is never going to um, help you become the best version of yourself that you really should, right? Absolutely. So, so um, some some aspects aside from just that uh, <clears throat> of what we just talked about of spirituality that can really really be helpful is because it can increase a sense of purpose, right? Mm -hmm. It can uh, provide more hope for the, the for the future, and it can provide a community of like minded individuals in which you can share your experiences. And as we talked about, socialization is really key. Positive socialization is really key, but also you know having a lot of people that you have this sort of foundational. Um, similarity with, right? When you can build these friendships and you can grow with with them as well, you know, um, it's good to have that level of support. Absolutely. And, you know, just as a further comment as on unhealthy versus healthy spirituality, you know, one of the the things that, and, and I, I'm guessing that some of those studies, because there, there were a few that showed like actually a, a negative uh, effect of religion and spirituality on, on mental health probably had to do with, types of religion or spiritual practices that weren't so healthy. And so there are things that we, we kind of want to look out for as well. Now, one of those, I think, is our picture of God. There was actually one study that they did, and this was an interesting study they did on HIV patients. Mm. And so they looked at the uh, T cells, which are the, the T helper cells, which are the ones that are attacked by the HIV virus. And they wanted to see, like, are those actually affected 
by your view of God. And so they they had three groups. They had one group that believed in a loving picture of God, um, another one that believed in a judgmental, angry, retributive sort of picture of God, and the third group that didn't believe in God at all. And what they found was that the group that actually um, believed in a loving God had the highest level of T, T helper cells, so they were the least affected by HIV. The group that um, didn't believe in God at all actually had higher levels of T helper cells <laughs> than the group that believed in angry retributive God. Hmm. So the point of that study that, I, that my take home point was like, wow, it's better to actually um, not believe in God at all than to believe in an angry retributive sort of picture of God. Wow. That's a, that's a very interesting study. I'm surprised somebody came up with that design. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating. So it's not just important to have spirituality, but, but also the type of spirituality. Um, the other, the other thing that I think is important to, to really take note of too, is that, you know, when we're talking about healthy religion, we need to make sure that it's, it's never forceful. It's never coercive, manipulative. It also, it always provides freedom. Right. Um, so anything where there's like this inappropriate guilt, manipulation, that sort of thing, that's not healthy spirituality. And that sense of like, I'm being controlled. And if I'm not doing this, then somehow, you know, I'm going to go to hell right away or, you know, something like that. It's just that will create more stress and, and more problems, actually, and oftentimes inappropriate guilt and can lead to even spiritual OCD, which some people call scrupulosity. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that can be a big problem. So the, the fourth pillar of treatments um, is psychological treatments. Yes. So, you know, we're finally moving into the, the, the mind, right, if you will. Uh, so, you know, what are some psychological treatments that are, are going to be foundational for a lot of the patients that come see us? Well, when we think about the psychological intervention or the therapeutic inter intervention that has the most evidence base, we talk about what kind of therapy? Cognitive, Cognitive behavioral. behavioral therapy, <laughs> right, exactly. And so what, what is that? I mean, we don't have time to get into that, but basically it has to do with looking at our thoughts, looking at our beliefs and how those then in turn affect our emotions and our behaviors. And so what a good therapist and, and ideally people can kind of learn to become their own therapist, but what a good therapist will do is help people to dissect and say, okay, what kind of thoughts and beliefs am I having uh, about my life or about the situations in my life or my relationships that are then leading to negative feelings or inappropriate actions or unhealthy behaviors, and then really challenging those. And, and in my mind, it's a beautiful thing because we just talked about the spiritual component, right? This is actually where when we reframe or when we change our beliefs, um, if we have that spiritual backdrop to do it from, that can be very helpful to kind of integrate those two things. Yeah. You know, I, I for a lot of, for a lot of uh, my patients, I describe to them when I'm kind of walking through what, what CBT is and, and, and really uh, how it can benefit you. You know, all of us have had kind of an aha moment, right? An aha moment is essentially when you come to believe something, you come to realize something you didn't previously believe, right? And it sort of sits deep with you and you like truly believe it. And in those moments, like, when you have that aha moment, like it feels really good, right? It can change your emotional state almost immediately. And that's, you know, that doesn't always happen necessarily. It doesn't always happen like right away, but a lot of times with cognitive therapy, 
if it's done right, if it's done well, um, people's uh, original sort of core belief can change sometimes instantaneously and they can have that aha moment that will drastically and almost immediately even change their emotional experience. Absolutely. And in my mind, that's kind of like a paradigm shift that someone can go through. And uh, it's exciting, you know, when you see like, oh, wow, the eyes open. I, I never thought about it that way. And, and sometimes it can be just a simple way of looking at things that you never did before. And you're like, suddenly now I'm seeing the glass, glass half full instead of half empty. So there are a number of other psychological treatments and we're not going to go through all of them in, de in detail, but you know, DBT is another common one that we use, particularly here at Beautiful Minds. You know, this is more so focused on specific tools, uh, particularly for regulating really intense emotions. Uh, it's kind of classically, it was, it was designed for patients with borderline personality disorder that have a lot of issues with relationships that have a lot of issues with self-harm. Um, and so it's a very useful tool um, for, for many people that are dealing with emotional problems, but but, you know, a little bit more specific for specific groups of people. And by the way, that stands for dialectical behavioral therapy. And like you said, it's not just good for borderlines, but for all sorts of conditions. And it's actually a subtype of cognitive behavioral therapy. And so a few more we'll just briefly mention, but interpersonal therapy. So this is mainly focused on, uh, you know, helping you and your relationships with other individuals. If there's a lot of tension, maybe it's in, you know, even in, in, it's in a marriage or coworkers, uh, you know, that can be extremely helpful. And then if you uh, maybe get, maybe if it's in a marriage and you get both of those individuals in a group, right, or maybe you get the family together, right, for therapy sessions, right, this would be considered marriage and family therapy. And then, uh, you know, maybe for people that are dealing with loss, you know, a lot of times we'll do some grief counseling. Absolutely. And those are all um, very key depending on the, the different situation. So anything else that we need to touch base on regarding treatments for major depressive disorder? Uh, so the next the next step in terms of kind of the the, the treatment protocol that we're we're typically uh, using, uh, especially when we're considering kind of severity of symptoms, you know, might be uh, supplements. Right. So so. And this this might be a little bit strange to to uh, people, especially if maybe they've been going to multiple psychiatrists and all they're ever getting recommended is pre prescription medication, right? They may not know that there's actually multiple different supplements that could be, in some cases, equally, if not maybe even a better option uh, for for many patients with depression. Yeah, it's pretty exciting to me because you know a lot of these supplements have a lot less likelihood for side effects and can often be just as efficacious when you look at the some of the data uh, that, uh, for example, Sam E, mm -hmm. and then even saffron extract. Yeah. Uh, when you look at the data for those, um, similar effect to antidepressants, really. Yeah, those those are some of the best options available, and and really, you know, depending on uh, what patients have tried and what their tolerability and what their uh, you know what they can afford, right? There's a lot of different variables that kind of go into this, um, but you know, there's there's many others things like 5-HTP and turmeric, uh, rhodiola rosea, lithium orotate, even zinc and vitamin D, right? All these things can be useful. Um, maybe on their own, but probably more so in combination with either other supplements or, or in combination with medication. Absolutely. And especially if someone's willing to you know, improve their nutrition and maybe supplement some with some of these things, I think we can often see a really good outcome. Yeah. And, I, and I'll, and I'll say that, you know, definitively I've had many patients that are currently taking antidepressant medication and we will, maybe they're maxed out on a dose of an antidepressant, right. Or, and we, or maybe they respond really poorly to antidepressants and we just don't have a whole lot of other options, other good options. A lot of times, uh, adding an adjunct supplement 
uh, to to supplement right their their antidepressant medication can be a really good strategy. All right. So, what about medications? Uh, we're not really going to do a deep dive, but any thoughts you want to highlight real quick on that? Yeah, in terms of the antidepressant medications, you know, if you've been, if you've seen a psychiatrist, you're probably pretty familiar with these ones. You know, there's there most of them are serotonin based, right? So they they help. Um, I mean, basically serotonin lasts a little bit longer, you know, in between the neurons. Right. And so, so they can, they can be helpful for not only depression, but some other uh, mental health disorders as well, but they're not the only class that we use for depression. You know, we call them antidepressants, but we also have, you know, medications that are what we call like atypical antidepressants. And then we also have antipsychotic medications uh, that, that sometimes we'll use for, for our more severe cases or more treatment resi- resistant cases. And then heart, uh, going back to what, what Dr. Bina said, uh, about sleep earlier is sometimes I can treat somebody's depression by treating their sleep. I don't even have to give them an antidepressant, but I can give them something specifically for sleep and that can make a massive difference in their overall mood. Uh, and then there are some, there are some, uh, lesser known medications that are sometimes used as adjuncts. So this might include things like lithium, uh, lamotrigine or even ketamine. Absolutely. Well, in our, in our last, uh, section here, let's just touch on biological treatments that are not medication. So the first thing is uh, TMS. Uh, most people, when I mention that acronym, don't know what that is, right? Um, they, a lot of them will say, is that that like electrical thing, right? Um, <laughs> and generally they're, they're thinking ECT. But Dr. Binus, you've got a lot of experience with TMS. So why don't you give us a kind of a brief overview of that? Yeah. Several years ago, um, I we, I actually was looking more closely at it because I was thinking about getting a machine. We actually did end up getting a, a TMS machine, a transcranial magnetic stimulation is what it stands for. And and so it's been really interesting to see some of my most difficult depressive cases uh, respond. Now, I'm not saying not everyone responds, right? But most people actually have a significant response rate, even some of the most severe cases that I've seen. And I've been happily surprised, but basically what is it? Well, there's an MRI strength magnet that is used to basically induce a, um, it's a magnetic pulse and electromagnetic pulse. And that stimulates uh, the left frontal lobe because one of the things that we see over and over again in neuroimaging studies where they look at the brain on, on images is that when people are depressed, the left frontal lobe is underactive. And by the way, it's kind of interesting because oftentimes the right frontal lobe is actually overactive. Mm. And so with TMS, typically the protocol that um, is used is that we will actually find you, you got to do what we call mapping. So you have to find the right place on the brain and you do, you do it externally. So on the head and, and then you're sending electromagnetic pulses into that part of the brain, which is in the left frontal lobe. And that actually stimulates it. So it helps to kind of jumpstart that underactive part of the brain. So it works differently, right? Because the medications are working from a chemical standpoint. In other words, they're changing the brain chemistry, like with the serotonin, norepinephrine, dopamine. The uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation, on the other hand, is working with the electricity of the brain. So it's more directly stimulating the nerve cells. And sometimes people, when you know the, the neurochemicals aren't enough to kind of jumpstart the brain, if you will, 
then the electrical impulses, the electromagnetic impulses can actually jumpstart that part of the brain. So I hear people saying, uh, Dr. Binus, uh, you know, is this like, how effective is this? What kind of rates do we see, you know, in our clinic in terms of- Yeah, so it's a a great question. And and actually we, we, to meet criteria for- Insurance. I wish I could use it for mild and moderate depressed patients, but unfortunately at this point, uh, most insurances only cover the severely depressed patients. So, so this is for the severely depressed category. And we actually see some really good rates, um, especially for that population. We see a, a, a approximately 70% response rate and right around 40 to 45% um, of remission rate. And, and so what does that mean? Well, response means there's significant improvement. And so 70% of those severe patients will improve, um, at least in, in our clinic. And, and overall studies show similar uh, results depending on what population is chosen and whatnot. Um, but then the remission rates mean basically you don't meet criteria for depression anymore after treatment. And so that's about 40 45%, uh, depending on when we collect that, that data in snippet of time, but it's, it's a pretty exciting numbers in my mind. No, ab- absolutely. Especially with the side effect profile, you know, when you kind of compare that to many of the medications as well. Exactly. Because really it's uh, side effect for TMS is very minimal. Um, other than people often do have a little discomfort during treatment, although after about three or four treatments, it's usually perfectly fine and most people are very comfortable. But other than that, um, it's very well tolerated. There's a very, very small risk of, of inducing a seizure that really is only for people that are already predisposed to having seizures. Um, it's, it's very unlikely. So um, beyond that, you know, it's, it's very well tolerated. So that'll, that leads us into kind of our last, uh, or, or I should say the last treatment we included on this list, not to say that there aren't other treatments out there, um, but, but ECT, right? This is, uh, this is the one that everybody's kind of scared of, you know, the one that I'm always nervous to make a re- recommendation for, uh, cause people always think about one, <laughs> one flew over the, over the cuckoo's nest. Right? Exactly. But, you know, but, but ECT still to this day, even though it's been around for decades, I think for, for many is still considered kind of the gold standard for tre- treatment resistant cases of depression. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it really is still, although I will be honest and say, I hesitate, uh, like I think you do to recommend it until that in my mind, it's kind of like, okay, we really don't have any other good options. Um, and then we need to kind of open up that discussion. But, um, what are some of the reasons other than kind of the stigma that you hesitate sometimes on the ECT? Well, well, one is it, it's, uh, it's, there's not very many facilities that offer ECT, you know, in our area and many of my patients would have to drive over an hour for all of their treatments. And it's not like you just get one treatment. You have to go multiple times in many cases. Um, so, so that's, that's one problem. You know, there's kind of the cost and inconvenience associated with that. You know, obviously that's relatively minimal considering if you're that severely depressed, you know, you, you might just take about anything. Um, but you know, we are inducing seizures, right? So it is a surgical procedure, right? That has to be done. And, you know, one of the most common and a very concerning side effect for a lot of people is the memory loss Mm -hmm. associated with ECT. And so this can be a big deal. People can, can, people can lose uh, like, you know, um, a a decent amount of time, right. In, in, when they, when they do ACT, um, above and beyond that though, in any other comments kind of about certain side effects? Yeah. I mean, the, the main other thing I think I'd say is, is when I've talked with people, the whole experience of going through anesthesia and having to 
you put under, it can literally, for some people, um, especially if they're already depressed and feeling vulnerable, kind of traumatize them, mm. the whole experience. I mean, there's people that look back and they're like, oh, that was just a horrible experience. And, you know, I, I'm not trying to talk down. I have completely on it, right? Because I have actually seen it uh, have amazing results in a very small amount of patients that I've actually had that have gone through ECT. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there's other people that have gone through it that I've talked to afterwards and they're just like, yeah, it didn't. So it's not definitely not a cure all. Sure. And, and the studies have, have essentially shown that, you know, once again, we're talking about the most severe cases. And so really, if anything has a, has a decent likelihood of working in this type of patient population, like it's still worthy of consideration, but you know, in, in a meta-analysis, which is a collection of many different studies, this was 17 studies specifically, they showed that there was a 40 percent, uh, 41% remission. So that was complete, uh, you know, elimination of all depressive symptoms or most of the depressive symptoms. Um, and about a 60% response rate with ECT. Yeah. And in my mind, it's like, I mean, that's okay, but uh, yeah. I, I was not actually worth the risk. Yeah. Yeah. And so we have to, to weigh, weigh all of that. And again, I'm not completely against ECT, just mostly against ECT. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and the reason being like, I think even a lot of those severe cases, um, if we really use this holistic approach we've talked about, we can get a lot better. So yeah, that's a good point. So la- lastly, we'll just kind of touch up, you know, what is the prognosis for patients with major depressive disorder, Dr. Binus? Well, it's actually pretty good. You know, yeah, they've even done naturalistic studies that show that most people uh, given, you know, several months or a year or so, even if without treatment will sooner or later get better. <laughs> and that's kind of like, okay, well, if I've been working with somebody for, you know, 12 months on their depression and they start to get better, I'm like, oh, did we finally you know, get the right combination of meds and therapy and interventions? Or is this just, you know, part of naturally getting better? So overall, um, for most people, the prognosis is actually good. And for those that do have multiple depressive episodes, we also know, you know, something called the kindling effect, right? With each subsequent episode, you're more likely to have another episode, right? So when you've had multiple episodes, you know, your the prognosis, um, you know, doesn't, it, it's, it's not quite as good, you know, but if you're, if you work with somebody and, you know, we're going to continue to advocate for a holistic approach, right? But if you work with somebody that's very comprehensive, that has a very individualized treatment plan, that's willing to incorporate, you know, kind of a lot of these things that we talked about today, then, um, I mean, you know, I, I can, you know, speak from my own personal experience and I'm sure you do too, but a lot of, a lot of patients, um, that, have gone, you know, other other clinics and just weren't getting the services they really needed. Have come to our clinics and made major turn turnaround. Absolutely, and to me, that's one of the most exciting things—not just as a clinician, but as a human being. Absolutely, you know, to watch people come out of that fog, to watch them get that hope again, and the joy and the meaning in life, and start to connect with other relationships and the things that they used to enjoy, and maybe new things that they can enjoy. So, you know, I I think we have a great job. And, and, and it really is exciting when we put these different things together. So I really hope um, that for all of you listeners, that this is a podcast that brings about a lot of hope and encouragement for you, especially if you or someone that you care about is dealing with depression, that there are things that can be done. And that when we put these things together, that you can get better and life can be really joyful and meaningful again. So if you only take one thing away from today's show, remember this, if mental illness is a whole person problem, 
then it must have a whole person solution. I'm Dr. Daniel Bynus. And I'm Jonathan Edens. And you've been listening to The Brain People Podcast. Thanks for listening. To hear more episodes, find us on social media, or support us financially, visit thebrainpeoplepodcast.com. 